There are a lot of ways to die. Cheerful greeting to you tonight. But, but really, honestly, there are a lot of ways to die. In fact, I looked up as of 2019, these are the leading causes, the leading ways for you to potentially die. The first one is heart disease. Over 600,000 people died in 2019 of heart disease. Uh, the next on the list, and maybe you assume this one, is, is cancer, and that's almost 600,000 people died of cancer there. Then you go down the list, there's accidents. This could be you get in a car accident, this could be you fall out of a roller coaster, this could be uh, you know, a, a meteor falls from the sky and just crushes you. Um, there's 161,000 people who died from accidents. Uh, respiratory disease, there's 142, or 154,000, rather, uh, respiratory disease. This means asthma, COPD, things like that. Uh, people who die because maybe they smoked for a long time and they've got lung disease and, and they end up dying from that. Or somebody who's got asthma and has an asthma attack that they can't recover from. Uh, that was 154, almost 155,000 there. Uh, stroke, 142,000 people die every year from stroke uh, or thereabouts. Alzheimer's disease is 116,000 people dying uh, from Alzheimer's disease. Uh, diabetes, 80,000 people a year dying from diabetes. Uh, influenza or pneumonia, you've got 51, almost 52,000 people dying from influenza and pneumonia. Uh, kidney disease, you've got 50,000 people dying of kidney disease. And then last on this list of the not top 10, you've got suicide checking in at about 45,000 people dying every year by suicide. These numbers are 2019. My guess, though, is they haven't changed very much because one thing that remains the same from year to year is that people die. Uh, it's a sure thing. In fact, if Christ doesn't come back first, all of us in this room are going to die. And that's what I want you to think about right now. And I know you don't really want to think about that right now, but uh, that's the reality that faces us. In fact, uh, there, is, uh, there are rather over uh, 1.3 million adolescents in 2020 who ended up dying. In fact, here's the number for you. Uh, 1.3, there it is, 1.3 million. Look at that number on the screen. 1.3 million between the ages of 15, okay, and 24 years old. You guys fit that demographic. 1.3 million. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, 1.3 million, that's not that many people. And, and surely I'm going to not be part of the 1.3 million for this next year. But I, I just want to put those numbers in perspective for you a little bit. Uh, this is uh, SoFi Stadium. That right there on the screen is 18 and a half SoFi Stadiums. That's 1.3 million people. So you think of a sold-out football stadium, and that every single person in that stadium dying 18 and a half times over. You fill it up, you kill them all. You fill it up, you kill them. You do that 18 and a half times. That's how many adolescents in your age range died in 2020. School buses. I didn't have time for this, but that's over 16,000 school buses. So just picture that. It's, it's grim, but that's part of what I want to communicate here. Bus after bus after bus after bus after bus of people your age driving off a cliff, 16,000 plus. Okay? You're in a life stage, which is so good for so many reasons, because you've, in so many ways, and, and what the world wants you to believe, and, and for many of you in this room, we hope and pray by God's grace, you have, so to speak, your life in front of you. You have your ambitions and your dreams are intact. Not too many of you have had those crushed yet, right? So you've got this, this excitement every single day that's like, okay, I'm one step closer to becoming whatever it may be. 
unless you end up as one of the 1.3 million this year. Oh, Pastor PJ, that's pretty grim. That's, that's kind of my point, because I want to ask you this question, because we need to be ready to die. And my question for you tonight is, are you ready to die, and do you even desire that in some regards? Now, I, I don't mean desire that in a suicidal man, form or fashion, but I mean, do you desire that because of what it means for you is that you get to be with Jesus? Moses penned the words of Psalm 90, and in this psalm, he says this, in Psalm chapter 90, verse 10, the years of our life are 70, or maybe by reason of strength, 80. And then he says, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. 70 years, 80 years. He said, before you know it, it's over and you're gone. Well, I'm, I'm over halfway there myself. Psalm 90, verse 12, two verses later, he says this, So teach us to number our days that we might get a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days that we might get a heart of wisdom. Look, my desire and prayer for every single one of you in this room is not that you would be part of the next 1.3 million. My desire for, and, and prayer for every single one of you in this room would be that you would live ready to be one of the next 1.3 million because your life is counting for Jesus every single day that everything about you is about Jesus. Every single breath that you take is about Christ. That your goals, your dreams, your ambition, your drive, your bent is solely set on Jesus. If you get there, you're going to be ready to meet him whenever he calls you home. You'll be ready to see him. You're going to be ready to echo Paul's sentiment that we're about to read in this chapter. Pick up in verse 18, the second half of verse 18. Remember last week we talked about there's some preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry, and Paul says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And then he continues his line of thought here. He says, yes, and, and I will rejoice. Well, why are you going to rejoice, Paul? Verse 19, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Again, if you're just joining us, or maybe you forgot, Paul's writing from prison. Paul's not writing from the Ritz. He's not writing from home. He's not writing from the road. He's in jail right now. And so he's saying this situation is going to end in my deliverance. He says through the, the prayers of the saints in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 11, we get a, a glimpse a little bit of what those prayers look like there. And you can turn there and maybe read that together in small groups, 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 11, where Paul's asking them to pray for him. And he's asking very specific ways and so he, he knows the Philippian believers are praying for him. He says, look, I'm, I'm glad that you're praying for me because your prayers, I trust, through your prayers, God is going to work this for my deliverance. But not just through your prayers, but also through the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit. In John 14, 16, 14, 26, 15, 26, and 16, 7, every single one of those verses Jesus mentions the Holy Spirit and calls him our helper, okay? And so Paul's saying, and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Spirit that helps Paul in sustaining him, sustaining his faith. He's the one that sealed Paul for that salvation, ready to be revealed in the last times, according to, to, uh, to what Paul himself writes in Ephesians 1. This Spirit is helping him endure while he's in jail. He's helping him, and Paul's convinced through the conviction and in, in, in leading of the Holy Spirit that, that he's going to be delivered from this situation. Do you think back to Joseph? Remember, Joseph was in jail as well, just like Paul is here. 
And Joseph told these dreams or interpreted the dreams for Pharaoh's cupbearer and the baker, and it worked out okay for the cupbearer, but not so much for the baker. And it, but the cupbearer, you remember, he said he forgot Joseph for two years in jail. Okay, Paul's not thinking that's going to happen here. He's expecting, it appears by our context in this passage, that he's going to have some sort of trial or some sort of uh, meeting with the higher-ups, and he's going to be released. This is going to work out for his deliverance. That word deliverance is the word where we get salvation. It's the same word in the Greek there. But Paul, I think, here is anticipating that it's going to work out in his physical deliverance, although maybe not, because look at verse 20. He says, As it is, my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full confidence, now as always, and now we get a picture of the deliverance that he's talking about. With full confidence, now as always, this is where my eager expectation and hope is, that Christ will be honored in my body, whether that means life or death for me. And so yeah, later on, Paul's going to talk about the necessity for him to continue working with the Philippians. But he's at least entertaining the idea that his deliverance may come through his death. But his focus is not on himself, but on Jesus. His focus is like, is on the reality that he wants Christ to be honored no matter what happens. He says, it's my eager expectation and hope, right? He's passionate about this desire for Christ to be honored in him, whether he lives or dies. It's the same word that Paul uses in Romans 8, 19, where he says, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Eager longing. The, the creation is groaning. It wants that redemption. Paul wants Christ to be honored in his body whether that means through his continued living or through his death. This was Paul's true confidence as he's sitting in jail. You know, sometimes as Christians, when we're suffering, well-meaning Christians come alongside us, and, and not wrongly so, but they'll bring Romans 8, 28, and 29 to, to bear on our lives as we're suffering, and they're like, hey, you know what, but it's okay because God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him. And when we're in the midst of suffering, when we're look at some, looking at somebody who's not we can be tempted to kind of roll our eyes at them and be like, oh, come on, it's easy for you to say. Okay, this is the guy who wrote that, that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him. The guy who was in jail not knowing whether he was going to live or die, okay? So that weight of that Romans 8, this is Paul's Romans 8, 28 and 29, working itself out before us. Paul lived it out. He knew what he was talking about. He was acquainted with that. In fact, if this is Paul in a Roman prison, he's already written that. This is in the background. This is his confidence. This is his desire. It's the same thing with, with our, our friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I always go back to that passage, one of my favorites in the Bible, where they look at Nebuchadnezzar and they say, look, we don't need to answer you, Nebuchadnezzar, because look, our God is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace, but he will deliver us from your hand. That's Paul's confidence here too. It's like, I'm going to be delivered. Even if I die in this prison, guess what? I'm delivered because I get to go be with Jesus as he's going to say shortly. But y'all, this mindset that says, look, whether by life or death, bring it. If I'm one of the 18 and a half SoFi stadiums this year, okay. This mindset that says, I just want Jesus to be honored in me, whether I live or die, that is a foreign mindset to us until it's formed in us by the Spirit. We don't naturally think that way. We have a survival instinct that kicks in for us. But the Spirit of God, and that's why I think Paul says, look, with the help of the prayers of the saints and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Spirit is allowing him to think in a godly way about his circumstances so that he says, you know what my main desire is? My eager expectation and hope isn't that the jail cell is going to fling open and I'm going to walk out. 
maybe that's going to happen. My desire, though, fundamentally, is that no matter what happens to me, Jesus is going to be glorified through my life or my death. I just want Jesus to be exalted. That's what Paul's thinking here, right? And again, that mindset only comes through God working it in us. It's a mindset that is, is full of trust and faith in Jesus. And it's a mindset that allows Paul to write these things in jail, not knowing whether he's going to live or die, and he's not panicking. He's got a peace that comes from that sort of mindset, a peace that comes from that sort of faith. Our first point tonight, as you think about this and modeling this, is this. Build a faith that gives real peace. Build a faith that gives real peace. This is, is not the faith of the, the, the health, wealth, and prosperity teachers that are out there. That faith will not give you a real peace. This is not a faith that says, hey, become a Christian and life is going to go great for you and everything is going to be perfect in your life. That doesn't give real peace. This is a faith that God works in us that says, man, my home is not here. It's not about me being comfortable here. My job is not to... to be all that I can be and be number one here, my, my job is to exalt Christ here and that my ultimate joy is going to be realized when I go to be with him. That's this type of faith. We talked about Jim Elliott last week. This is a, another story that gives us a picture of this kind of faith, and it may be hard to see up here on the screen. This is a wood carving, and it was done back in the 1500s, and it's a wood carving of two men, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. By the way, if you've not read the story of the martyrdoms of the Reformation saints, let me just encourage you to do that. J.C. Ryle's got a book called Light from Old Paths that's awesome, that, that talks about them. Uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs talks about these men as well. Men and women also, and even, un, tragically, children who were burned at the stake because they believed in Jesus and would not recant their teaching. Burned by Bloody Mary, the Catholic queen, because they were preaching a gospel that said we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, right? And so these men were arrested, Latimer and Ridley, because that's what they were preaching. They were preaching the gospel and in Fox's Book of Martyrs, it says this, on October 16th, 1555, after spending eight months in a tower cell, Latimer and Ridley met at an Oxford stake. With Latimer in a frock and cap and Ridley in his bishop's gown, the two men talked and prayed together before a smith, that is a blacksmith, lashed them with an iron band to that wooden stake. Ridley was the first to strengthen his friend. Be of good heart, brother, for God will either assuage the fury of the flame or else strengthen us to abide it. As the bundle of sticks caught fire beneath them, Latimer had his turn. Raising his voice so Ridley could hear, he cried, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England, as I trust, shall never be put out. As the fires are burning them to death. They had a faith that gives real peace. Because their faith was in Jesus. And, and talk about honored in your death. These men are, are bleeding Christ. As the flames are lit in, in with every single one. The, the Catholic priests were right there in their face going, If you recant, you can spare your life. And yet, faithful Martyr after faithful martyr after faithful martyr refused because their trust was in Jesus. And they went to their death because they had a faith that produced a real peace. 
This is a faith that realizes that even in our death, our desire is for Christ to be exalted and God to be glorified. That if we're tied to the stake, so to speak, in life, and we have an opportunity to escape death by just denying Jesus, that we would rather die the most hideously gruesome, painful death that we could possibly imagine than deny our God and Savior. It's a peace that's not bound to the circumstances that you find yourselves in. Maybe asking, okay, does this mean that I have to die a martyr's death to have this peace? No. Does this mean I have to suffer physically to have this peace? No, not necessarily. Does this mean I have to die a memorable death or be well-known in life to have this peace, this kind of peace that we're talking about? Again, no. But it may mean those things. It may mean death. It may mean suffering. It may mean dying in such a way that causes the world to stop and take notice. The question is, are you building a confidence in Jesus like Paul had that produces this peace that passes understanding? A faith that gives real peace. Job 19, 25 through 26. Job developed this faith. Job 19, 25 through 26, Job says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and that at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, after my life is over, after I am died, yet shall my flesh see God. Remember, Job was suffering so immensely at this moment. And yet he said, Even if I die, Yet I will see God. He had a faith, though an unrealized faith, the way that we realize it now in Jesus, but Job had a faith that gave a peace. This peace that Paul had is expressed so succinctly in one of the most famous verses in all of Philippians. You probably know it or you've heard it before maybe in other contexts, but Philippians 1.21, it's the next verse in our passage. It says, for to me to live is Christ." And to die is gain. I want Christ to be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Literally in the Greek, it's for to me, life, Christ, death, gain. Paul was confident in God's promises, both temporarily and eternally, which made his situation, his circumstances, a win-win for him. He's like, if I'm going to live, guess what, y'all? I got a mission. I'm going to go keep doing what I've been doing. He explains that in verse 22. He says, look, if I'm going to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. I'm going to be back out there. I'm going to be being the, the remember at the beginning of, of the, the epistle, Paul and Timothy, what? Servants, you guys memorizing this book with us? Come on. Servants of Christ Jesus. I talked about how that's really slaves of Christ Jesus. Paul's like, if I'm going to live, that's who I am. That's my identity. That's my job. I'm going to go serve Jesus. You're going to let me out. It means fruitful labor for me. When, right, I'm going to go back, plant churches, strengthen churches, encourage churches. In fact, we see some of this in Romans chapter 1. Paul talks about his calling here in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. It says, Paul, a, here it is again, a servant, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel which he promised beforehand through his prophets by the Holy Scriptures or in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning who, Paul? Well, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh 
and declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Who's that, Paul? Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. Now, here's where Paul describes what his job is. To live means fruitful labor for me. This is that fruitful labor described. We've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of Jesus' name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's saying. You want to know what fruitful labor is for me? It's to bring about the obedience of faith. Faith in what? In who? Jesus. Among who? Everyone that'll listen to me. That's why Paul says for me to live is Christ. Y'all, that's the same for us. You're like, well, I haven't been called as an apostle. No, but you've been called as a disciple. Matthew chapter 28, go make disciples of all nations. Well, that was only delivered to Jesus' main disciples, his 11. And that wasn't me. Okay, but what does, he, what does the rest of the Great Commission say there? Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to what? Obey what, again? All that I have commanded you, including the fact that you're supposed to be making disciples. So you and I are in the target of the Great Commission. For you, you need to be able to say with, with Paul, if you are in Christ, to live is Christ. That my main goal and mission and purpose in life is to, to reach people for Jesus, to serve Jesus, to love Christ, to bring about the obedience of faith for Christ. This led to Paul in his mindset in Philippians chapter 3, which we'll get there this semester as we preach through this, but it just fits so apropos here as what this looked like for him to live as Christ. He says, Philippians chapter 3, start in verse uh, 4. He says, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church, which, by the way, in this context is supposed to be viewed as a good thing because he's talking about how zealous he was for God as a Jew, thinking that this was a departure from Judaism. It wasn't. But Paul's saying, look, I was persecuting the church because that's how much I loved God. A persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, look at that. He says, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him, Jesus, that I might know Jesus in the power of his resurrection and may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now is where he describes what it looks like for him to live is Christ. He says in verse 12, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's what it means to live as Christ. It's, it's, Take the world, give me Jesus. It's everything that I'm going to do is about how this is going to glorify Jesus, exalt Jesus, magnify Jesus. And if it's not, I'm not going to do it. 
This is what Paul meant by fruitful labor. Fruitful labor for Paul wasn't that he was going to fulfill all of his personal dreams and ambitions and goals. It wasn't that he would be successful in the eyes of the world. If that was fruitful labor, he never would have decided to follow Jesus. Fruitful labor for Paul was that Jesus would be honored in his life. This is why, y'all, he writes what he does in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 about singleness. When Paul says, you know, I, I wish everybody was like I am. And then he says this, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, to live as Christ. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. His, his devotion is going to be divided there. And his interests are divided. And, and to the unmarried or, or betrothed woman, she's anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, she, to live as Christ. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things and how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to Jesus. To live as Christ is to have an undivided devotion, devotion to Jesus. And I'm not saying you can't do that married. I'm just saying that's why Paul was saying singleness is such a good thing. Because you've got a unique ability to pursue Jesus unhindered. Look, if Paul wasn't useful to Jesus, though, because there's a second half of that equation in Philippians 1.21. To live is Christ, and what? To die is gain. And that was Paul's mindset. If he wasn't going to be useful to Jesus, he wanted to be with Jesus. And that needs to be our mindset as well. That's why death is considered gain. That's why he writes in Acts chapter 20, verse 24. Acts 20, verse 24, he says, I do not count my life as any value or as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. In other words, Paul's saying, once I'm done with my job here that God has set out for me, bring me home, Jesus. I don't want to live just to live. I don't want to live just because I, I think living is swell and I get to go to the happiest place on earth and, and pay for overpriced food and stuff. No, he's going, once I'm done with the, the work you have for me to do, get me home. I, I want to be with you. I want to be with you. Jesus. To die is gain. I mentioned in the first point that that peace that we need to have is, is only possible if the Spirit works that in us. Y'all, this mindset that, that looks as, at death as gain, uh, even more so, because it is an unnatural point of view to think that, that death would be gain. Y'all, we have saints in our church who are suffering right now and thinking about death and going, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go be with Jesus. Free from this body. Free from this suffering. And look, they're, they're not suicidal. They're, they're passionately, madly in love with Jesus. And they want to be with him. Because do you want Jesus more? Do you want to be with him more? Do you want your life to make him happy, even if it means it might not make you happy. Point number two tonight is this. Build a faith that longs for Jesus. Build a faith that longs for Jesus. To live as Christ, to die as gain. If, if I live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, he goes on to say, which I shall choose, verse 22, I, I can't tell. This is Paul using a rhetorical device. He didn't really have a choice in the matter. It's not like they came to him and said, well, Paul, we can execute you or we can let you go. Well, I don't know, man, that's a tough choice. 
but he's driving home the point for us that he wants to be with Jesus. In fact, look, he says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. The, the word picture here is that Paul's passing through like a narrow canyon with life on one side and death on the other, and it's squeezing in between the two, and he, he, he feels that pressure on either side. And then he says this, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Y'all, this is not about suicide. This is about how great Jesus is. Okay? This is not about depression. This is about an elation at the thought of being with Jesus. That's causing Paul to say, I want to go be with Jesus. Do you want to be with Jesus right now more than anything else in this world? Do you want to be with Jesus more than getting married? Do you want to be with Jesus more than moving out of the house with mom and dad? Do you want to be with Jesus more right now than you want to have a, a family? Do you want to be with Jesus more right now than, than you want to finish your degree program and get the job that you want? Do you want to be with Jesus more than you want to go plant a, a new church in North Texas? That one's for me. But honestly, y'all, do we want to be with Jesus more than anything else? And I threw that last one in there because, look, it's not as though these other desires are bad. They're not bad. It's not sinful to want to be married. It's not sinful to want to finish your degree program. It's not sinful to want to move out from mom and dad's house. In fact, some of you guys need to move out from mom and dad's house. It's not sinful to want to go plant a new church. Those are all good things, but they pale in comparison to being with Jesus. And that, 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 that's a mindset that we need to work on cultivating and developing because it's far too easy to buy into the lies of the enemy that says this is going to make you happy here. This is going to fulfill you here. This is what you need here. This is what's been missing here. And this, if, if you get this, it's going to be great. And if you don't get it, oh man, your life is going to be over. You're not going to be able to, to even That's the lie of the world. Because it, it, the reality is if you become one of the 1.3 million, you're not achieving any of those dreams and ambitions and goals. But you get Jesus. Good enough? I mentioned Ridley and Latimer, another one. This is Bishop John Hooper. John Hooper was imprisoned and he knew his death was coming. And from prison he wrote this. He said, Therefore, you that may send to the weak brothers, pray them that they trouble me not with such reports of recantations as they do. In other words, tell the weaker brothers and sisters out there to stop pestering me about recanting my faith. People were coming to Hooper saying, Please, just recant, and then, and then you can be set free. You don't have to die. And they were doing that because they loved him, but their love was misplaced. Hooper goes on. He says, for I have here left all things of the world and suffered great pains and imprisonment. And I thank God as I am ready to suffer death. I am as ready rather to suffer death as a mortal man may be. Hooper says, I, I'm, I'm I've made peace with my death. I'm ready to die. Well, shortly before his execution, one of these weaker brothers, a friend, came to him because he loved him. But again, his love was misplaced. 
And this friend came to him and said this, I'm sorry to see you in this case. For as I understand, you have come here to die. But alas, imploring him to recant his faith in Jesus. He says, alas, consider that life is sweet and death is bitter. Therefore, seeing life may be had, desire to live, for life hereafter may do good. In other words, think, Hooper, of all the good that you can do if you will just recant, and then we can move away and get away from Bloody Mary, and then you can preach the gospel and think of all the good you'll do and the people that'll be saved. Just recant. You don't have to mean it. It's like Shadrach and Meshach's and Abednego's friends pulling on their robes as the music was playing. Guys, guys, just fall down. You don't have to mean it. Think, we need people like you. We need faithful, strong leaders like you that are going to be able to help us. You're going to get thrown in the furnace. Fall down. Worship the image. It's, it's what this guy's pleading with Hooper. Hooper replied, True, it is, Master Kingston, that death is bitter and life is sweet. But alas, consider that the death to come is more bitter and the life to come is more sweet. In other words, hell is more bitter than the death that I'm about to enter into. And heaven is so much sweeter than the life that I could stay and live. Therefore, for the desire and love I have to the one and the terror and fear of the other, I do not so much regard this death nor esteem this life, but I've settled myself through the strength of God's Holy Spirit, patiently to pass through the torments and extremities of the fire now prepared for me, rather than to deny the truth of his word, desiring you and others in the meantime to commend me to God's mercy in your prayers. He wanted to be with Jesus. He was ready to be with Jesus. His prayers were simply, man, this is going to hurt to get there. So if you want to pray for me, if you want to help me, pray for God's mercy as I'm burned alive. It's moving, encouraging, convicting, challenging, motivating, compelling, stirring. We should be praying that God would give us more of this kind of a faith, more of this kind of a longing to go be with Jesus before we ever get to a stake, if we ever get to a stake. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 36 through 38. Writing of the great saints in the Old Testament, the writer says this, Others suffered mocking and flogging and chains and imprisonment. And they were stoned, and they were sawn in two, and they were killed with the sword, and they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute and afflicted, mistreated, here it is, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. Looking back at them and, and the way that they suffered and the way that they died, he says the world was not worthy of them. Y'all, what are you doing right now to live a life that the world is not worthy of? What kind of testimony, what kind of legacy are you leaving? Are you creating right now? What are you doing to live ready to die? Because you want to be with Jesus that much. I want to be able to say with Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If you want that, let me suggest that you begin to loosen your grip on this world. 
the things that you've said, if I can have this, then I'll be happy. If only I can get this, then I'll be satisfied. Those start there and begin to pry your fingers loose. It doesn't mean God won't give those things to you. It just means that you can't look at those things as your hope. You got to look at Jesus and say, I want Jesus. Look, if these things are going to help me honor Jesus in this life, great, give them to me, God. If they're not going to help me honor Jesus in this life, then don't give them to me. Start praying that about your dreams, your ambitions, your goals. And if you say, I can't pray that about this because I'm afraid that God won't give it to me, then you've identified an idol in your life that needs to be destroyed. To live is Christ, to die is gain. C.T. Studd, again, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Man, Paul wanted to go be with Jesus, and yet as much as he wanted to be with Jesus, he's like, yeah, but I know that you guys still need me around. Verse 24, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. I need to stay here. And being convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your joy and progress in the faith. So that you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Uh, to remain and continue with you in the faith. It's, it's a play on words in the Greek. Meno is remain and parameno is to continue with you. So he's just emphasizing the fact that I'm, I'm, I'm going to be here. Lest you're panicking there going, man, is Paul gone? Are we going to lose Paul? He's saying, look, I, I'm, I'm going to be here, but look, my goal here is your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus by my coming to you again. Glory in Christ Jesus. And the reason is because Paul wanted to see them progress. He wanted to see them grow in their faith. He wanted to see them mature in their faith as believers, sanctified, being made more like Jesus. You remember again, Romans 1, he had that whole concept there of bringing about the obedience of faith. That's what he's wanting to do with these Philippian believers. He's saying, I, I still have work to do with you. And the Spirit's laying that on me. And because he's laying that on me, I'm convinced that I'm going to see you. That's why at the beginning of this, back in verse 18 and 19, he said, I, I know that this is going to work out for my deliverance. That's why I said, I, I think Paul's pretty sure that he's going to be released physically from prison, but he was ready not to be. But here we see that the Spirit's laying it on his heart, that he's going to continue on to bring about the obedience of faith, to see their faith progress, continue, advance is the idea there. And also the joy in the faith, the joy in the gospel that he wanted them to have. For what purpose? So they could boast in Paul, so that Paul could get the credit? No. So that they could glory in Christ Jesus through him coming to them and serving them. In the last point, we looked at the vertical, vertical component of our lives, that our lives need to be all about Jesus, to live as Christ. Here we see the, what that means for the horizontal component of our lives. Your life, Christian, should have a sanctifying impact on the lives of others in your midst. That's why when Christ saved us, he brought us into this family called the church so that we would encourage each other, so that we would have an impact on each other that sees one another become more like Jesus. Our final point this evening is this. Build a faith that sanctifies others. Build a faith that sanctifies others. Yes, you want a faith that gives you peace and a, a faith that longs for Jesus. And then in the meantime, while you're here, this faith that you're building into should have a, a, a sanctifying effect on the lives of other people in our midst. In other words, 
the Christians around you should be more like Jesus as a result of knowing you than they would be if they didn't know you. But you can't have this if you're not deeply connected to the church. We talked about that last week in Maine. Pastor Mike preached a sermon on being involved and connected to the church. It's not just so our attendance numbers look good. It's because we need to live this out together. And you can't do this if you're not involved in the church. You can't follow Paul's example here so that your friendship results in the progress and joy and the faith of other believers if you're not plugged in and connected and committed and involved. And some of y'all aren't, even though you show up here every single Sunday night. You're showing up here and you're checking that box, but when small group time comes, you're not doing anything other than taking up a seat in the room. And look, I'm glad you're here taking up a seat in the room. Don't get me wrong. But let me just tell you, frankly, you're doing it wrong. Because God wants you plugged in. He wants you investing. He wants you talking. He wants you contributing. He wants you praying. He wants you asking for prayer. He wants you encouraging others. In fact, here's a way that you can have a sanctifying impact or 10, however many I have on this list. I don't know. How about this one? Uh, Bring the word into your conversations with each other. Bring scripture to bear. Be that guy or that girl that when your friends see you walking up, they're going, oh man, I need to talk to this about them, but I know as soon as I do, they're going to have a Bible verse for me. Be that person, please. We need more of that. Encourage each other with the promises of God. This is how you can bring the word into these conversations. You got a brother that's struggling or a sister that's struggling in in wrestling with hope or their circumstances are hard, remind them of God's promises and that he's faithful to keep them. Bring those passages to bear on their lives in a way that is loving and encouraging. Or how about this? How about you speak truth to a brother or sister who's in sin? Galatians chapter 6, if you see a brother or sister caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore that person in gentleness. Some of you guys need to work on the gentleness. Some of you guys are carrying like the the, the, the Bible bazooka in, in your back pocket and you're just waiting for somebody to sin so you can come at them and just knock them out. That's not gentleness, okay? This is speak the truth in love. Bring God's word to bear in love because you care about their godliness. This is a way that we can have a sanctifying impact through our faith on the faith of other believers. Another way is celebrate the victories of others by giving God the glory. Somebody gets a new job, praise God with them, Right? Somebody gets a promotion, awesome, praise God, give glory to God and his kindness and his mercy and his grace in their life that he provided that for them. Celebrate their victories. Another way that you can do this is pray for each other sincerely and earnestly. Pray for them in the moment. Somebody tonight share something with you, don't just look at them and go, okay, I'll be praying for that for you. Stop and pray right there. Like right there? What if there's other people around? This is the church! Why are you ashamed or embarrassed or shocked to sit there and pray with each other? Somebody's side-eyeing you for praying in church. They got the problem, not you. Pray for each other sincerely and earnestly. Another way you can have a sanctifying impact is this. Report answers to prayer to one another. Some of you guys are great about bringing the requests and not very good about bringing the, the answers. And so somebody has been praying for you for like six months for something. You're like, dude, that, that, I forgot, that resolved like five and a half months ago. And, oh yeah, it worked out, it was good. Oh, okay, so I can take that off my, my prayer list for you. Yeah, it's been answered. Great, thanks, appreciate that. Maybe a little bit sooner next time on the, the follow-up. 
But seriously, follow up. Why is follow up important? So that we can stop praying for that thing? No, that's just a, a, a silly example. No, so we can worship God as a result of how he's answered prayer in your life. You can sanctify others by saying, guys, can I share with you how God's answered this prayer in my life? That gives them a, a reason to, to have the joy that Paul talks about here in this passage in their faith. Uh, remind each other of the gospel. And daily, this is such a good thing to remind each other of. Man, praise God that we are forgiven of our sins because Christ died on the cross for our sins. Praise God that we will live with Jesus forever because he rose from the dead. Praise God that he's given us his spirit so that we can follow him as our king and our Lord. These little reminders are so good for us. Remind each other of the gospel. Third, or ninth, tenth, a millionth. Memorize scripture together. Shameless plug, we're memorizing the book of Philippians. Do that together. Create flashcards together, whatever you do together. Group discord, uh, Bible memory discord, create that. I'm sure there's so much garbage on discord, it would help just balance it out a little bit, right? It's like, hey, we're going to memorize the scriptures with this thing. Memorize the Bible together, right? Uh, how about send each other worship songs? Nathan gets sick of this because I'm always like, and Pastor Rod is now falling into this trap too. I listen to something on Spotify, I'm like, oh man, that's really good. And I'll send it to either of those guys. Usually Nathan's already heard it. He's like, yeah, we're singing that next week at the bridge. Yes. But send each other songs that stir your affections for Jesus. Why? So that it will stir their affections for Jesus. For some of y'all, this needs to read, start listening to worship music and then send people songs. But seriously, it, it's such an encouraging way. And now we've got this thing on our phones where we can hit this little box with the arrow on it that goes up and it brings up the pop-ups and it's like, yes, yeah, text this to Nathan and tell him this song slaps <laughs> in a sanctifying way. Serve together. Oh, that word that's next to that. Some of y'all, most of y'all got an email this week about Awana and the fact that we've got needs in Awana. Y'all, if you guys want to have a, a sanctifying impact, here you go. And note, you may not be seeing these four, five, six-year-olds, seven-year-olds, eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds repent and put their faith in Jesus, but you are planting seeds in their life that somebody else may water that may turn into salvation. I'm, I'm serious, y'all. We need, we need laborers for Awana. And you guys are in a perfect position. If you would say, I know Jesus as my Lord and Savior, we'll handle the rest as far as training you. But serve together. Grab somebody in your small group tonight. Say, hey, what do you think? Let's, let's sign up for Awana. Commander Greg, Mr. Peterson, you guys know him, right? He came to me this week. He was like, hey, we, we've got this need. I want to just annoy him with so many volunteers. So if you guys got Thursday night, or you can make Thursday night open up in your calendar and your schedule to do some kingdom work, Please consider that. Advertisement over. But build a life that sanctifies others, that sees others love Jesus more. Your earthly life, y'all, here, here's a paradigm shift from the world. Your life on this earth is more about other people than it is about you. Okay? God wants you to exhaust yourself serving others, not yourself. This is Paul's mindset. This was Latimer and Ridley's mindset. This was Hooper's mindset. And it needs to be ours as well. If we're going to say to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
Are you at that place to be able to say with Paul, I will rejoice because I am confident that Christ is going to be honored in my body, whether by life or by death? Can you say tonight with honesty, to live is Christ and to die is gain? Can you say tonight that I desire to depart and be with Jesus for that is far better? Let's pray. God, I pray with with Moses, teach us to number our days so that we might get a heart of wisdom, that we might make good use of our days, of our time here on this earth. Father, teach us what it means that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Teach us what that looks like in our lives, in the spheres that we find ourselves in on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. Teach us what that looks like to live as Christ, to die as gain. Teach us what it looks like to live as Christ when we're at work, when we're at school, when we're at home, when we're here tonight. God, teach us that Jesus is far better than anything this world offers us. Teach us to know how to expose the lies of the enemy, the lies of the evil one who wants us to be in love with this world. Teach us to long more and more for Jesus. Teach us to fill our lives with more and more things that stir our affections for Jesus, that make us love Jesus more. Teach us, Lord, the things that don't make us love Jesus more so that we will be able to get rid of them from our lives. Teach us, Father, I pray, to love one another well enough to see that other people are more like Jesus as a result of knowing us than they would be if they didn't. Teach us to loosen our grip on the things that we think are the ultimate things in this life so that we can hold on more strongly to the ultimate one in Christ. Teach us the peace. Teach us the love for Jesus. Teach us how to love one another, God, because we need you to work that in and through us by your spirit. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.